The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn presents... I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. If you're someone who struggles with your mental health or you're neurodivergent, or maybe you just happen to watch a lot of mental health TikToks, you're probably pretty familiar with the idea of masking. Masking is something a lot of people do in the workplace to fit in trying to hide what makes them different, hiding a piece of themselves to behave in ways that are socially acceptable at an office, for example. Masking might help you get ahead, if you're in the wrong working environment, might I add, and it's exhausting. Today we're talking to Dan Mangana, an entrepreneur who was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and autism spectrum disorder as an adult, which means there were many years before that where he struggled, tried to mask, and where he himself says he ignored unhealed trauma. Since his diagnosis, Dan has changed his perspective on his life and work, and he aims to help others change their mindset as well. Dan has built a career, an income, and a schedule that allows him to use his gifts. You'll learn what synthetic creativity is, and minimizes his relying on tasks he finds challenging with his different brain. I find that this skill is prevalent among successful neurodivergent entrepreneurs and leaders. I started by asking Dan a bit more about what he does. It's really funny that you're asking that question, actually, because I'm in quite a transitionary period with what I do. I've always been an entrepreneur. I've only had two jobs in my life. I worked in the cinema when I was a teenager uh, for like a summer. And then for about six months in my mid-20s, when I was rebuilding my life, I worked in a call center to cover paying for my little bedsit and putting pasta and tuna on my plate while I built my business. Other than that, I've always been an entrepreneur. But for the last, since 2018, I've really been focused on really serving through sharing the work that came from my own sort of life experiences. And I've, I've been doing that pretty much full time. During the pandemic, interestingly enough, as we'd gone into the pandemic, I started to really get a lot of signs and synchronicities to kind of step back into entrepreneurship a little bit more. Uh, and that's been going quite well. And so I'm kind of in a space where my business that wasn't meant to be a business, it was meant to just be serving people, did really, really, really well over this time. And then my entrepreneurship is kind of doing really, really well. And I'm in a space right now where I'm separating church and state, if that makes sense, where I'm really getting clear on what is pure service and separating that out so it can be almost independent by itself. And then what's pure entrepreneurship so I can have really clear lines. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm in organization mode, but that heart, I'd say I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. When you say service, who are you serving and what is it that you are providing them that helps? I am probably best known for my work around abundance. Um, people generally box me into financial abundance or money, but it, it wasn't actually financial abundance or money that I actually intended <laughs> to, to do. 
For me, it was about supporting people in consciously creating the life that they want to live. And I do that principally through a couple of frameworks I have hobbled together from my own experience. One of them is something I call the Beyond Intention Paradigm. The other one is the Flow Funnel, which kind of, it's a modern, more easily digestible take on the hermetic principles of the different layers of reality and how they connect with the world that we're living in for ourselves. Another one called Money DNA. So those are the key principles and key frameworks that I use to support people, but ultimately it's putting them in a position whereby the life that they live is the one that they've chosen to live rather than the life that they just end up living every day. <sighs> isn't that, I mean, isn't that what we all want? We, we want that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and mm. we want, of course, money to support that. Exactly, which is where the money thing came in because the more and more I was supporting people in creating that life, more and more the excuse was coming that I can't because I don't have the time, I don't have the money, my job's in the way, I don't have the resources. And so I started creating specific targeted pieces of content and a program to support people on the financial side, really so that they could focus on the life side. And it kind of took off and took over. So the reason I, I wanted to have you on the show is that I was on your show. And yes. and we got to talking and of course I was talking about my own mental health struggles and, and yours came up. You told me about your diagnosis with Asperger's mm-hmm. Correct. and you said that it saved you. Yes. From what I've read, your beyond intention paradigm actually sort of emerged from your diagnosis and a really tough period that, that happened. And I would love to just hear your story about what led you to get diagnosed? I was actually 27 when the diagnosis came in. Yeah. So what happened? So uh, I had the unfortunate gift of getting successful really, really young before I had learned what it meant to be successful. And also before I had developed the life experience to know what success really means and how it's kept. And so what ended up happening was I made my first million when I was 19 years old and unfortunately was still quite drunk on the arrogance of youth (laughs) and essentially thought that I knew everything. Now, I want to backtrack a couple of years before then. So it's really funny for me that as soon as I was diagnosed, right, everybody was like, hmm, can I just ask something? Are you on the spectrum? And yeah, I managed to go (laughs) 27 years with nobody guessing anything or having anything to say. And that's because I guess the pros that I have of being on the spectrum kind of outweighed the downsides that people kind of just put up with. And I just kind of suffered with, including crippling insomnia that I suffered in extremely long periods of time, horrible social anxiety, had literally no friends at all. In fact, do you know, you've got people that have got friends from high school and friends from college and friends from school. I don't have any of those. I have one solitary friend from the age of 15, my best friend, Nathan, who's been with me consistently over that time. I've got people that I know from like my mum's church when I was a kid or whatever, and we stay in touch. But I'm talking about a real friend, someone who's actually been there for me and really loves me for who I am. I've, I've only got one. But I kind of threw myself into hiding behind success, I would say, as being the balm to deal with the fact that I didn't have anything else really going on for me socially or life-wise. Really, I didn't have you know, group hobbies. I was really crap at sports and stuff like that. So I wasn't in a team. I didn't have any social circles. And so what ended up happening was entrepreneurship was something that I was quite passionate about from quite young. I 
taught myself to make computers when I was 13 years old. Ding, 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 ding. Nobody realized that there was probably something going on there. <laughs> and I was selling those in a free newspapers. I had a tuck shop at school. And, um, a tuck shop. Can and you translate that like, for the Americans? Okay, tuck shop. What's a tuck shop? Um, what the dickens would you call a tuck shop? I would call it a commissary. Yeah, like a little commissary. So basically, I had a stall at school. So we had a project, basically, where for one week, we had to do a business project at the school. And I managed to convince a family member to open up an account with a cash and carry. And I bought snacks <laughs> and I brought them to school and I was selling like chocolate bars and, and like candies and stuff at school. And then somehow I managed to just sneak on continuing to keep my tuck shop for the next year, my, my commissary at school for the next year. <laughs> yeah. And then they, they got some vending machines and the, the head teacher was like, you know, we've got a, a vending machine here that we invested some money in and nobody's using the vending machine because everyone's coming, coming to you. Can you please stop? <laughs> like stop. And so I had to shut down my, my store. Oh. But yeah, I was reading books like Think and Grow Rich. I read Joe Carbo's Lazy Way to Riches, uh, Stuart Goldsmith's The Midas Method, reading books like um, the, the Charles F. Handel's Master Key System, Psycho-Cybernetics by uh, Maxwell Maltz. I was reading those as a teenager. And what it had given me, fortunately and unfortunately, was this kind of unassailable, dogged self-belief in my ability to use my mind to create anything, which had up until that time been untested by any real adversity. And so I had success after success after success to support you know, a not fully developed mind that's got nothing else really to do other than to relish in its wins. And all of that kind of came crashing down in quite a big way, which led me into the dark place, which ended up being uh, the fertile ground on which I grew to be the man that I am today. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. For first of all, I just have to know, how did mm -hmm. you make your first million at 19? What did you do? So my friend's brother and I started one business where there was a company called Gem Discounts. So I think they changed the name to Gem Wholesale after a couple of years. And do you know catalog returns? When you buy stuff from a catalog and you return it, they have to sell it off at a discount. And what they do is they put them into these packages and you can buy these packages really, really cheaply. But they end up being mixed batches. So you'll spend, I don't know, one or two thousand pounds and you'll get a mixed batch of stuff and you don't really know what's in there. But generally speaking, the average is going to be between 10 and 15% of the market value of the good which is generally either not really damaged or at least like B grade and it's repairable or it can be sold as is. And so what I was doing is I was buying those and then Jordan was selling them because he had the relationships to sell them. I didn't really know people. And then from there, other things kind of sprouted. I found a company that had a service where they would allow you to place orders with them to buy cars at auction. Huh. So what would happen is you'd, you'd give them the specifications of what you wanted and they had a network of car dealers that would go to auctions and buy those cars for you. So I had another business that did that. So we charged 200 pounds to do the search for people. And then we would get them up to 50% discount on the car. So we made the 200 pounds regardless for every description that they put in for a car, every specification for a car that they put in. And then uh, we generally make, you know, five to 10% on the car huh. as well. And then other businesses rose from that. I found out about trade finance at that time. And trade finance basically is this really interesting world whereby Brokers will go to someone that's got money. Let's say, for example, that you had a little nest egg or whatever. Yeah. So the, the broker would come to you and say, hey, rather than you making 2% on a, a certificate of deposit, I will issue trade finance against that, letters of credit and performance bonds with hook clauses so your money's safe. And I'll make you anything from 5 to 10% a year instead. And so I could go to a trade finance broker and say, okay, I need a million dollars of trade finance to buy goods 
I could take that million dollars of trade finance, buy goods that have got at least a 10% margin and I can double my money because it will cost me about 5%. And so I went off and started doing that. The issue, and this is the thing that really caused me my first little fumble, should I say, was I went to people and I said, hey, give me the money to get these this trade finance and I'll basically do revenue share with you. Uh, that's illegal because you're not allowed to, it's oh. technically having an investment company. You're not, you're not allowed to do that without a license. And so what ended up happening was the initial businesses gave me a foundation and then I got into the trade finance and then that opened up a whole new world. I was buying, you know, containers of food and food products. I did a, a, once we did a container of 10,000 phones from Nokia that we sold at a very nice profit. But what was happening is, is you're effectively doubling your money every time. And I give people 50% back on their money and I was laughing and it grew really well. But unfortunately, yeah, there was no license. And so the government were allowed to come in and literally take everything <gasps> because it becomes proceeds of crime. Because if you don't have a license, then everything you've done is criminal and therefore they're allowed to take everything from you. So yeah, they took everything. That, that happened when I was 20 years old. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> okay. So, so, wow. First of all, you must have built a lot of relationships, right? And not even, not even. I hacked other people's networks. You hacked other people's networks. And this was kind of a big part of my journey. What happened was people gravitated towards me because I could make them money. Yeah. And I knew that they were using me, but because I didn't actually have relationships and didn't understand the value of relationships, I was okay with these asymmetrical usings because at the end of the day, the only thing I really cared about was that. I wanted to continue to be successful and to validate this identity of me being the successful person who knew everything. So if you want to use me and get money that I'm going to make more of anyway, and you're going to make everybody can have money, there's no shortage of it that I can see. I don't really care if you think that you're using me because at the end of the day, you're not really using me because I know that you're using me. Right. And that's kind of a, the cynical approach that I had to life for many, many years. But probably also born out of the fact that you maybe were trying to connect with people as a kid and it people weren't, were people not kind to you? No, they weren't really. Yeah. No. But the thing is that the crazy thing is looking back when I look at my behavioral patterns, I was just that awkward kid that was kind of annoying. <laughs> right. <laughs> and for, for other kids, it's like, I can see why they really weren't that interested in being my friend for many years, like my sister. And it's really funny. Like I laugh about it now, now that I am really quite socially adept because I, I kind of went a bit deep into studying social dynamics and understanding human behavior. Like my sister, my younger sister, she's got friends since that she's had since she was 10 years yeah, old, yeah. right? When we moved to Essex and she's still got that same circle of friends. And we still laugh about how awkward I was back then. It's like for them, it's really weird to see me being this adept social person who can be <laughs> different groups of people when before I couldn't hold a conversation for more than a couple of sentences without making it completely awkward and really cringy. So I understand why people didn't want to, to be around me, but I suppose you're probably right that there was some kind of unconscious almost backlash to that, that kind of led to the cynicism that I became okay with after a while. Yeah. What do you think it is about your brain, or maybe it was all those books you read, that allowed you to sort of see around corners? Like clearly, though, you had an eye. There are very few 18, 17-year-old kids who know about, I didn't even know what you were talking about half the time just now. <laughs> <laughs> so like, where did that, where does that come from? I think one of the gifts, I mean, I'll, I'll be forever grateful for Dr. Helen McEwen, who is the, the person who actually supported me through my diagnosis and, and getting on my feet, having had the diagnosis, start really building my life again after that. And she helped me to understand what my gifts were. And one of the gifts I've really got is synthetic creativity. I've got organic creativity. I do it with music. I come up, you know, write poetry and stories and all that kind of stuff. But if you give me pieces, I naturally see 
like optimal opportunities for how they can be organized. It's one of the things that made me, I believe, successful as a coach and a consultant that I would come into a strange situation or a situation that people don't really see a way through. And I generally can see a way to organize things for them to be better. And so when the trade finance opportunity came into my world, they didn't really have a big grand vision for what they were doing with it. They were quite happy making a few, you know, a few pieces of change here and there. And I immediately saw the potential of it and set to work finding the other pieces and bringing them together. And that's kind of what I've always done from a business perspective, from an entrepreneurship perspective. You know, I have to tell you that I speak to so many brilliant neurodivergent people. Sometimes I like to count myself among them. We have an ability to see around corners to to fit those pieces. I love how you just put it. There's something about that brain. Mm. I talk to many successful entrepreneurs and it is that synthetic, I love the synthetic ability that is such a gift and also very emotionally exhausting. I don't know about if you find that, yeah. but it's, it's hard. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, it was my friend's birthday on the weekend and we went out to this beach club for the day. And it meant that Sunday, I really just needed to be by myself the entire day. <laughs> I just, I just, so I, I've got little strategies, whatever, to kind of deal with bigger groups of people. You know, I, I, I corner off little smaller groups that I can deal with that don't need as much energy, yep. but even that becomes taxing. And so Sunday I was like, yeah, I'm just going to stay in bed. <laughs> I, not because I drunk. I mean, I had like maybe two beers for the entire day. I'm not really a big drinker, but um, whilst people were recovering from their hangovers of alcohol, was hang- I was recovering from the people, the people hangover, hangover. Um, and spent Sunday. <laughs> so they do. I that. feel yeah. you. Okay, so the government comes in, swoops in, ends life as you know it. Yes. What happened? Well, I I was still really arrogantly, doggedly, still within this thing that I was invincible, mm. and so towards the back end of two thousand and three, what had happened was is that people had started to hear about this crazy little nineteen year old mm. that's like solving problems at a weird rate. And people started offering me money to pick my brain. And I was like, yeah. And then one person's like, look, I'm going to give you a thousand pounds if you just let me sit with you for an hour and pick your brain wow. about something. I was like, okay. And I realized, oh, hang on a minute. People will pay me for my brain. So when I'm sitting there sort of, I was staying at my brother's. I was at my big brother Charles's house. And I was like, right, this isn't going to do because I've gotten used to liking nice things. And I'm not going to be doing that if I'm broke sleeping at my in my, in my brother's house. And so... I kind of knuckled down and said, okay, well, people were prepared to pay me to pick my brain. Why don't I make my brain available for people to pick? And so that kind of got me going. I was making good money doing that. And then I realized, well, hang on a minute. At the moment, I'm exchanging my time for money, which is basically a job. I don't really like the idea of that. What about if I ask for equity stakes in people's projects, Mm. plus a little bit of a retainer, and went in that way. And and that's when my, my consulting company, Corner 4 Consulting, was born. And I basically went into people's projects and I said, okay, I'll work out how to maximize this project or how to get it funded and whatnot. And I want a stake and I want cash. And and that's how I was able to build up another fortune in about a year and a half. Wow. Do you think you have a gift yeah. for making money? I wouldn't say my gift is making money. I'd say my gift is really the organization of ideas into something bigger than what it looked like. And the ability to to see through the mess and find solutions, not perfectly by any means, but definitely to a greater degree than they sit. It just so happened that by virtue of the fact that I did learn entrepreneurship from such a young age, that I've managed to kind of 
take rudimentary entrepreneurship and a quite good problem solving ability and put them together. When I see people that are natural money makers, like you can see them. Like I've got people that I know that you just see them. They just naturally just know how to make money. My thing isn't they're making the money. It's it's creating the gaps where the money can be made. That's where my gift is, I would say. One of the things that came through also from from the diagnosis, what Dr. Helen kind of understood, helped me to understand that the anxiety that I was feeling is because I can't deal with things that are too bitsy. I need things really clean because that's what my brain needs in order to function. And so the way that I take ideas, even when people say things to me and I feed them back to them in a, a really refined way, that's because that's the only way that my brain can actually process it. And so I've taken that need for refined processed ideas and applied that to things that the world can use. And that's become the work that I've shared with people. Mm, I love that. What led you to Dr. Helen's office? So what happened was I was going through a particularly horrid, horrid, horrid insomnia period. Mm. It was about two weeks. I had a zero sleep. Oh I went to the doctor. The doctor prescribed the strong. I mean, I tried everything that I'd normally try, the chamomile tea, the over-the-counter stuff you know, turning off the electronic devices, having a workout before bedtime, breathing exercises, none of it was working. So I go to the doctor. It was the first time that I'd ever gone to a doctor to ask for help with my sleeping issues in, in my entire life. And um, he prescribed a, a medication called Zopiclone, which was the strongest sleeping medication that he could prescribe. And in the UK at the time, he was only allowed to prescribe three because they were addictive. Mm. You know, people get addicted to them. So I said, look, you'll take one and you'll be fine. At the most, you'll need one and a half, but you can't take more than two. Otherwise, you could overdose. Mm. So I went home. I took one, took one and a half, took two, was still completely mm. wide awake. Go back to the doctor. I was like, doctor, <laughs> dude, like I had two of these bad boys and nothing. And he said, well, this isn't, you know, there's definitely something going on in the head. We, I need to refer you because I can't give you any medication. I gave you the strongest thing I can give you. You need to go and see this, this therapist. He didn't send me to Dr. Helen under her hat as a cognitive behavioral therapist that specialized with adults with autism, it just so happened that she was on the roster to get the referral that day. Oh my God. And thankfully was a cognitive behavioral therapist that specialized in working with adults who had autism. And so she saw the sign straight away, which again, as I laugh, so many people that have come into my life since then have been like, hmm, you're on the spectrum, aren't you? Now that I recognize some of the signs, I can see sometimes at least, you know, to some degree that someone should consider whether they are on the spectrum, but she saw them straight away. Didn't tell me, kind of really took me through a kind of therapeutic, like a, a conversational therapeutic process for some time. And then was asking me to do these different tests and questionnaires and stuff like that. And if, eventually she was like, look, I think that this is what's going on. I'd like you to do a, a proper test yeah. to see. And I came out quite heavy on the, uh, the neurodivergent side. That's interesting. You, you referred to it as Asperger's. Yes. So that, you know, although Asperger was a Nazi, and so his name, thankfully, isn't invoked yeah. anymore. In the States, we mm -hmm. would call that ASD-1, sort of high-functioning mm -hmm. autism spectrum disorder. Yeah. Does mm -hmm. that identify for you, or do you still think of it as Asperger? Yes. That, I mean, I don't really link, I don't really go into the, the, the playground of neurodivergence as much as some people mm. do. It's not something that I've... It's not a conversation piece that I normally go into and stay up to what's what's current. And so I'm outdated with my name for, you know, what what I was diagnosed with. Yeah. But I certainly identify with the definition that you've given there, the description you've just given. Yeah. 
Let's talk a little bit because you said she's a cognitive behavioral therapist. That is, for me, CBT has been extremely helpful. It, it's a different kind of therapy. It's not lying on a couch and talking about your mom, right? It's it's action oriented. Mm-hmm. It's all about, you mm-hmm. know, how can you sort of replace <laughs> replace current cognitions, current thoughts with more helpful thoughts and behaviors. Why do you think that was such a fit for you when you were diagnosed? I'm just curious. Do any exercises stand out or were there any sort of aha moments with her? Uh, I think for me, the real ahas uh, and the thing that has always stuck with me was just the empowered approach. I've had people approach me and say, oh, you're on, you're on, you're on, you're on the spectrum. Oof, you know, sorry to hear that. I'm like, this is one of the best things people ever. People say that to Are you. Are you crazy? People say that to you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People, because people that aren't maybe familiar with neurodivergence automatically assume, I mean, I've, people, I think it's even happened on a podcast. Oh, you've got the disease of, no, no, no. Mm. Like it, it, it's almost like automatically they, it, people sometimes go off onto a negative connotation of sorts or belief that it's, you know, an issue or a problem or a downside. But it's almost like it wasn't really, I wasn't really given the fullness of what it meant to be neurodivergent until I was told about how amazing it could be to be neurodivergent. And so that's kind of been the only official, because I've, I've not done anything else official. I've done tests since then just to make sure, I've done like different types of tests to, to make sure I wasn't making it up in my head or whatever, but I haven't done any other therapy around it. I've not done anything else around it. I, I know what my, my, my areas of support are. I know what my strengths are. And I've tended to lean into those uh, and have get specific support on specific areas versus, you know, more general support with it. How lucky you were. I, I wish that for every person who gets a diagnosis that they, mm. they, the first thing they hear is, this is good. This is great. This is who you are. I, I think it's, I think it's rare. And I, and I'm so happy for you. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Anxiety. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, so did you realize in retrospect that you had been carrying anxiety in your life? Well, it was Dr. Helen that helped me to see that that's what was going on. That's what was the sleep was. My nervous system was completely deregulated because it was trying to function in a neurotypical world as a neurodivergent with no support and, and to kind of force myself as a square into, as a square into a round hole. And I was battered and bruised from that. It's, you know, that's just what it was. So I'm, I'm really grateful again, 
that's one of the reasons why I say that my diagnosis was one of the most beautiful things to happen to me because it gave me a context for what was going on with me. And even now, like when I start to feel my nervous system going off, I can tell, oh, it's, I'm just deregulated. Am I overstimulated right now? Am I grounded enough? Can I slow down my breathing? Can I change my physiology? Do I need space so that I can, you know, recognize what's going on with my thoughts and, and start a dialogue with those thoughts to see whether they need to go off in the direction that they're going? Sometimes people try to fight anxiety or make it the devil. And that didn't work for me personally. What worked for me was creating the space to dialogue with it and to settle down my nervous system so that it doesn't go off on a tangent. I love that. That's the entire thesis of my work. So thank you for framing it up mm-hmm. so That's beautifully. Why we yeah. <laughs> That's why we got um, along. <laughs> do you breathe? What how do you how do you regulate your body? Because you mentioned that it's important for you. Mm-hmm. So there's different ways. I mean, I did some remote somatic work with this amazing practitioner called Sanam. I can't remember the name of the woman who created the the modality that she works with, but she gave me some really awesome exercises that helped me to massage certain parts of my body to settle the nervous system almost instantly. Mm-hmm. Like there's one where I hold my fingers behind my head and hold my elbows out and look at one elbow and then I can literally feel my nervous system settle and switch to the other one. So do that one then, box breathing, four in, hold, four out, hold. That one's really, really, that's something you can do at any time, even when I've got like road rage style stuff coming up, you can always just take a few deep breaths, right, for a minute or two and just get out the parasympathetic nervous system. So I find that's really, really good. I've had one positive experience with really quite aggressive breath work. I went to, a, so I was speaking at a retreat in Belize in December, and one of the other facilitators took us through this really powerful breath work session. That's the only time I've really been able to do deep and more aggressive breath work. I don't really like it. To be honest, it's not something that I find very pleasant, but yeah, the box breathing more, just, just slowing down the breath and just being really aware of it, you know, counting down to 10 with my eyes closed, the three, 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 two, 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 one, 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 I find really good as well, just to get into more of an alpha brainwave state. Those I find to be good, but the the kind of aggressive (laughs) for an hour, whatever. No Vim Hoff for you. No, no, I'll, I'll I'll pass on that. Especially the ice bath bit doesn't really. I know I'm I'm with you there, but yeah, I I love that you brought that up. It's just so incredibly powerful, and it's powerful to know that you can calm your body. The body takes instruction, and I think when we understand that our entire reality is taking instruction, but we are hardwired for that instruction to run on autopilot for our benefit, not for not to take us out or because our mind hates us or whatever. The mind just basically plays out whatever pattern and program it's been given. But we do have space to be a part of that dialogue if we take the time to learn ourselves and how best we can speak the language of our body so that it can calm down, so that it can move and take actions that we want it to take rather than habits, actions and behaviors that we don't want it to take. But it's a practice. And I think sometimes as well, people want the cookie cutter, snap your fingers overnight thing instead of putting the work in, Yeah, you know, taking the time to get to know yourself. What are your triggers? You know, being being more committed to overcoming those triggers and moving into a new experience of life than the identity that maybe we've formed of the person who has the situation in the first place. This isn't to negate what we've got. We have to own where we're at to move forward. But if we're owning where we're at from a space of victimhood where we don't have any space to move forward because this is who we are and this is who we're stuck being, then we're not going to be able to move forward, in my opinion. Do you ever have feelings though of anger against i mean yes you're you're a black man in the world <laughs> yeah you you grew up in england right you mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. neurodivergent in a world that doesn't mm-hmm. didn't build systems do you think about obviously 
you know, you you have learned how to help yourself and not be that victim. But do you, do you get angry also at the systems at the same time? And how do you reconcile that, I guess, is my question. I get angry at the systems, but it doesn't last very long because within a, a minute or two, I recognize that the systems are the systems and my anger isn't doing anything to change the system at all. Huh. It's the long story short. And I get I get some slack for it. I've got more slack from it in the African-American community than other mm-hmm. communities of the world where there are people of color. But I understand that because the, the PTSD scenario for African-Americans is 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 a lot more real, I would say, mm-hmm. than other black communities that I encounter in the world. I mean, my parents are from colonial, what well, was then Southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. But a lot of the atrocities kind of happened at the takeover. And then it was kind of more just the class system that left people subservient versus an ongoing violent oppression that perhaps we see in, for example, apartheid South Africa, that kind of reverted back to the violent suppression, I think probably the 70s and 80s and whatnot. For many, many people in the United States, I think the conversations I've had, people don't recognize that you have people in power now that were raised by a generation that didn't consider people of color to be fully human, such as that they had to be laws put in place to give people human rights and civil rights. I mean, the civil rights movement was really about human rights. Yes. And so when we consider that, I understand wholeheartedly why my saying, as tactful and as tasteful as I might be in saying it, my saying you to anybody, hey, you being a victim is probably not helping you, isn't probably going to get through to that person. It's like someone who's just suffered a horrific sexual assault and is describing their situation. And then you try and tell them, hey, stop being a victim. That's just not going to work because that person's in an immediate space of pain. Yeah. You know, their abuser could have just left them. Their abuser could be in the room. And, you know, when you look at some of the social structures that do exist in the United States, until some of those things change, there's not going to be a difference. And so, yes, I do get flashes of anger but then i do remember that the anger is not really doing anything and so for the work that i do empowering people to be more conscious and intentional in what they're creating acknowledging the challenges but not being incapacitated by them is what i seek to do instead okay i want to i want to pivot a little bit i want to talk about the question that i get asked when i speak with mm-hmm. groups is how do i create the work life that supports my gifts. Mm. You clearly have figured out, maybe not clearly, maybe you haven't, seems like you have, but who knows, how to build the infrastructure to do your best work Mm -hmm. and work with what you've got. And I'm so curious, what can you tell us about that? I don't try and do it by myself. I allow myself to be supported. (laughs) 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 This is like, I don't try and do it myself. I really don't try to do it myself. I focus my energy on knowing myself and being the best version of myself, knowing where I need support and then doing the best I can to be supported in those areas. That's what I do. I stay in my lane, quite simply. And what that means is that my energy goes into areas that are going to be expansive and any area that might pull on that or anything that might pull on that, I find a way to outsource it or to navigate around it completely. And that's what I do. I'm I'm really ruthless in curating my environment and the people, places and things in it. How? Like, what does that look like? Is it that you have lots of staff and assistants? Is it that you monitor your calendar? You say no? Like, what, what works? What's your system? All of the above, yes. So my no's are very strong. Anything that's not a fit at all and isn't something that we can mutually 
pour into and be poured into by it, it's going to be a no from me. I don't have any asymmetry in that way. Sometimes I can pour into somebody and the pouring that I'm going to pour into them is actually going to pour out back into me so much so that I want to do it. So I would say that. I don't look at my calendar at all, pretty much. (laughs) Um, My assistant does and sends me an email on Sunday with exactly what time I need to be where each day of that week. I only work three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I I like to keep my work week sub 10 hours. So I've got plenty of space for myself. And I do my best not to enter into agreements where I'm going to need to be in a fixed place at the same time every week for any prolonged period of time. I, I love that you brought that last one up. Why? Why is that personal freedom or independence important for your health? Because I don't know what's going to happen today. So for example, I knew that it was going to be challenging on Saturday, but I knew I was going to have a lot of fun. You know, it's Carl's birthday. You know, Carl's been a good friend for many years. It was at a beach club that I've been to before. Great music. I knew I was going to be dancing for hours. It's going to be fabulous. But I didn't know what the effect was going to be on the Sunday. If I had something that I was committed to every Sunday, that, that would have limited my ability to just be fully present to what I was doing on Saturday because I would have been thinking about making sure that I was going to be present and poised to be ready to do something on Sunday morning. And that's not something I like to do for any prolonged period of time. So even in terms of the personal development business, that's meant that very infrequently do I do live programs. Mm. Mostly what I'll do is I'll pre-record something or prep something and make it available. And then I'll have ad hoc scheduled time with me. And then I've got those working days that I've got everything slotted into. So I know Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I may have commitments, but I've got Monday and Friday And of course, the weekend that I can say, okay, Monday, I prep myself up for the week and Friday, I do self-care. I normally go to the spa or go to the barbershop, you know, get a nice massage, whatever, and just have me Mm -hmm. time so that I can, if I have had to hold the fort for a day or two and do a bit more than maybe I would have liked to have done, I've got that decompression time heading into the weekend. Before you could maybe afford the resources and structure you have now, what was the hardest part of your day? Probably needing to talk to people all of the time, I would say. I mean, I'm quite blessed that it's been many years now since I've had to do that. So back in 2011, 12, I want to say, when I was working at the call center for that time, my focus being at the call center was I'm going to be here for the next, I gave myself six months. I said, in this six months, I'm going to replace the income in my business so that my bare minimum needs are met. And I bootstrapped it from there. And so as soon as the business was making, you know, a little bit of change, just enough to cover everything that I needed, I bought my time back and dove straight back into the business. And the funny thing was, even when I could afford like a nicer house or a nicer car and everything, I poured everything back into the business so I could buy more and more freedom. Mm. And so I could afford more support. And so that was always my focus. I'm a firm believer in being in a conducive space to create. And if we're not in a conducive space to create, we're not going to be able to operate optimally. And so I focused on making sure that I was going to be able to have at least the minimum support so that it was by 2015. Yeah, I I was able to not really do much of anything. I was working just a couple of hours a week. The businesses were running completely by themselves pretty much. I remember I went away on a holiday with my my cousin to Asia. And in the entire two weeks, I had to take one 10 minute phone call with my assistant. And that was it. And that business was doing £100,000 a month on average. And so it was a matter of focusing your attention and intention on the areas where it's going to be most important for the long term. I mean, I could have 
started making some money, you know, gone and got myself a nice little car. I was still living in it. And even when I moved out of the crappy little bed that cost me 80 pounds a week, I, I, I went and got a little studio flat. I could have afforded a nicer apartment, but I went and still got another little studio flat that was outside of London. Mm. And I instead focused on growing the business so that I can get to the point where I can, you know, live a much better life. And it happened. I think by 2000, yeah, 2015, I had myself a lovely, lovely home in North London. You know, by then I was traveling then business in first class, going to New York a few times a, a year to see friends and and hanging out in, in here in Dubai and, you know, having fun. But I put the work in before I had time when I was, you know, when I was working in the call center, for example, I was getting up in the morning, working on the business, going to aunt, do the same seven minute long customer service call mm. over and over again from one o'clock to 8.30 bar and lunch break and two 15 minute breaks. But I did it with intention, right? That I was, I had a goal in mind and I, I just knuckled down and got on with it until I could have that space to buy back more time and more freedom. And I was more concerned with that because I knew with more time and more freedom, I'm going to be in more of a conducive space and then I can create more from there. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. What would you say to managers and leaders out there who might misunderstand what autism looks like in their employees? I think the first thing that really comes to heart for me is to not even make it about singling out your neurodivergent people and trying to understand them. But instead, just seeking to empower your people to be the best that they can so that they can give the best that they can to you in the organization. And for someone that is neurodivergent for in any way, there is going to be a superpower there that you can tap. What about if you empowered them to dive into that superpower and then supported them in that? You would get so much more out of your people and, and they would be better served as well. Just even from a karmic perspective, you pouring into them in that way is going to be really great for you. So I would say not even to make it about the neurodivergence, but to just make it about pouring into your people so that they can give you the best of who they are, and then you'll get the best as an organization. Yes. <laughs> I always joke this stuff isn't rocket science. Like, be a good person, <laughs> be not. a good manager, <laughs> pay people well, respect them for their time, let them have autonomy, and give them support. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. <sighs> Dan, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been great. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening. <laughs>